We were in chapter 8 of Daniel, and uh, I think I mentioned this Wednesday night. This may be the chapter in Daniel that caused the um, liberal scholars to reject Daniel as being the author of this book because the details here in chapter 8 are so precise um, that they can say it only could have been written by someone who experienced what was going on in the 2nd century uh, B.C. and not in the 5th century B.C. Daniel wrote these words um, about uh, three to 400 years before the Little Horn shows up and about 200 years before Alexander shows up. And so they say he could not have... Uh, written these words. They said the same thing about Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, uh, in verse 28, Isaiah, God mentions to Isaiah, Cyrus. Now Isaiah's writing in the 700s. He's writing in the 8th century B.C. Um, let me uh, just come back to verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel. For you are my servant, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Now those are words meant for the exiles um, when they would read them as they are in exile. They hung their harps upon the uh, trees because they lost their song, but God is telling them you still have a song because I'm still your God. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, your sins like mist. Return to me, and I ha for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrate the signs of liars and make fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolishness, read chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, this is the Lord, he is my shepherd, this pagan king that we'll see in just a moment. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And it was Cyrus that allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now the critics say Isaiah could not have known Cyrus' name um, about three centuries before he came into existence. But Isaiah knew Cyrus' name. Why? Because God. because God knew Cyrus' name. Just like Jeremiah, he said, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And he knew Cyrus before he was formed in his mother's womb. Because he's the God of all the earth. And so they reject. I had a professor in seminary, very good guy. I really liked Boo Heflin. But he was a Deuter Isaiah. He believed there were two authors of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 was Isaiah. And then chapters 40 through 66 was somebody else. 
that wrote later after events had occurred. I disagreed. I still disagree with Dr. Heflin. I still like him. We just agree on the authorship of Isaiah. I believe that Isaiah was the single author of this, and there's no problem with Isaiah writing and recording Cyrus's name when God gives it to him. And so these critics reject Daniel as being written by Daniel because of the detail that we're going to look at this morning from chapter 8. So if you're able to stand, we're just going to, I'm going to read through verse uh, 14, and then we'll go through the rest of chapter 8 as we examine it. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at first, before this is after the first vision he's talking about. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down on the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, that's Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it to gather with the regular offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to, the trampled, to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Father, as the song says, these ancient words are ever true. Father, as we embrace them by faith, they're changing me and changing you. And so, Father, we thank you that you are the God who is able to speak centuries before someone comes into existence and call them by name. And that, Father, you are able to give Daniel this vision 
of what was going to occur uh, three, four hundred years after his life. And so, Father, we thank you for being such a God. And, Father, may we be encouraged by what Daniel experienced here. And so, Father, lead us by your Spirit. Transform us by your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I said three to four. It's really two to three hundred years uh, difference in these experiences here. First of all, I want us to look at Daniel's second vision, its distinctions. It's two years later. His first vision came in the first year of Belshazzar when he came on the throne. Really, he was a dual uh, king with his father. His father was uh, living outside of the, of the capital for several reasons. Um, uh, he was still making campaigns uh, against enemies and he also tried to change the primary god of the Babylonians and they didn't like it and uh, the silent majority became vocal and he left and kind of gave Belshazzar his son control of the capital and the kingdom. But this is two years later. This is in the third year of Belshazzar. Something else happened in the third year of Belshazzar. When he threw that feast and uh, proclaimed his own greatness and God came down and wrote on the wall and said, you're found wanting today, this very night you'll be dead. And that was the very night that the uh, Medo-Persians, particularly the Medes, came down. They dried up the canal, came down the canal, entered into um, the capital city, and killed Belshazzar and took over the kingdom. This vision is prior to that, right before that happens. Don't know if it was the day before, a week before, a month before, but uh, maybe one reason Daniel was able to come in so boldly and tell Belshazzar, uh, you're a dead man walking, man. Uh, God is, is going to kill you tonight uh, because Daniel knew that this kingdom would be no more. So he was awake and not asleep. The first vision, he was sleeping and had this vision. He was laying on his bed, and God gave him this vision in his dreams. This one seems that he's wide awake, and uh, it's great emphasis, and we'll talk about this a little bit later at the, toward the end of the message. He repeats, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. He was seeing with his eyes what God was revealing to him. And, and so I think most likely he was transformed, kind of like Ezekiel many times in his prophecy was transformed by the Spirit to certain places that uh, this was in Daniel's mind. He was able to see that uh, the capital city of Susa and being in that citadel and, and seeing this ram on the bank of the canal. I don't think he was transported there physically. I think he was just able to see that, like uh, God put a panoramic uh, 4D, uh, maybe three-dimensional um, vision before him as he watched this. Uh, and it, this vision focuses on the second beast, and the uh, third beast of the first vision, focusing on the second beast, which is Greece, Alexander the Great, or the Medo-Persians, the second uh, beast, and the third vision beast is um, Alexander the Great. And especially number three, because out we're going to see this little horn. Uh, and the details go deeper um, in this vision particularly as we get down to that little horn, which is obviously Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and we're going to talk about him in just a moment. Uh, 
But these details go deeper. They identify uh, the little horn clearly. Uh, they predict his actions uh, specifically. And they also tell us that his actions were limited by the grace of God. And so as we delve into this, we want to see the significance of this vision. Now, uh, God had this recorded for a purpose. Now, I think part of the purpose is that after the return to Israel and to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple, that these folks had this prophecy. They had the book of Daniel. Um, they had the book of Jeremiah. I think Isaiah. They had the word of God. And I think part of this was just like Revelation was written to these seven churches to comfort their heart, to let them know no matter how much persecution is going on, no matter how devastating life is during this time in your existence, God is still on his throne. Uh, Jesus is the victor. He was the lamb that was slain and that you're going to endure this and you're going to come out on the other side in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. And... What's described here is very devastating uh, during the time of Antiochus IV. He was a wicked, wicked man. Um, he was delusional. In fact, he took the name Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the glorious God. Okay? Epiphanes means glorious or exalted. And so he took the name of God. And that's why the text says he even exalted himself up to the prince of the host, because he was claiming that he was God basically probably Zeus incarnate in, among the people. And he was delusional, and God sent a little bitty, little bitty virus, a little bitty bug that killed him. Wasn't a sword, wasn't another king. He was the God of all creation. Sent a little bitty virus and killed him. Same thing with Alexander. They think Alexander probably died of typhus. God sent a bug to him because he... Uh, had that uh, same uh, expectation of himself. And so this prophecy is an affirmation of the veracity of Scripture. God revealed to Daniel these events that were going to, Alexander rising up 200 years after Daniel lived, Antiochus Epiphany is about 100 years later rising up, this little horn, and God gives these he doesn't call him by name, but we know as we go through history and look at history that he's the one that fulfills this little horn. That he's the one because Alexander came to power after his, his father, Philip Macedon, Philip II died. Alexander was a very young man, I think still in his teens. Um, at best, 21 years old. I think he was 21 years old. Became the king. And within 12 years, he conquered the whole known world from basically Italy, the shores of Italy, all the way to the northern borders of India. He just, in 12 years, he just swept across this area and conquered. That's why it's described this he-goat was flying toward this ram without his feet on the ground. That's an indication he was of speed, with such speed that he had toward his conquering of the known world. It says this, this he-goat was enraged with this ram. Read a little bit of uh, history, Greek history. Uh, you all know about the 300 Spartans. You know about Marathon and Theopoli and, and these major battles that the Greeks stopped the Persian intrusion into 
Greece and to uh, Macedonia, and there was he was stopped. The Persian kings were stopped by the Greeks, but the Greeks also had great animosity toward the Persians, and that's one reason it says this he goat was so enraged with this ram, uh, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's a revelation of the depravity of man. So I mentioned uh, Antiochus was a was a wicked, wicked man. Um, he, he's the one that um, within three days, his first coming to siege Jerusalem, within three days, he slaughtered 40,000 Jews in a three-day period. He went down to Egypt, and um, there was rumors that he died in Egypt, and the Jews were rejoicing that he died, and um, he didn't, so he came back and exacted revenge upon the Jewish people, and this is where he imposes all these restrictions, the uh, ceasing of the sacrifices, um, made the Jews eat uh, uh, meat that was not kosher, uh, would not allow them to worship in any place in Jerusalem at the temple or any towns. He just draconian uh, rules that he enforced upon the Jewish people. And the ultimate sacrilege was the desolation. Okay. Antiochus IV was the first one to do, and this is what Jesus refers to what Daniel said about the abomination of desolation. Uh, Antiochus went into the temple, removed all the objects, and on the, except for the altar, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. He took a statue of Zeus and placed it on the altar, and um, uh, just in defiance of the faith of the Jews and defiance of the God of the Jews. And so he was a very wicked man. And he was a, demonstrated the potential. You know, we talk about, in uh, Calvinistic language, they talk about the, the total depravity of man. Well, most, everybody believes in that, right? Okay. See, most Baptists are three-point Calvinists, sometimes three-and-a-half-point Calvinists. Most Baptists believe in the, in the total depravity of man. They believe in the perseverance of the saints, our, our security of our salvation. And um, um, let's see, what's the other one? I can't remember. But anyway, he, he uh, epitomizes this depravity. Contemporary to us in our history, we would think of a guy like Hitler. We would think of a guy like Stalin. We would think of a of um, a guy like Pol Pot in uh, uh, what was it Cambodia? I think it was. Uh, we we think about this clown in North Korea. Okay. Not all of us live up to that potential of depravity, but all of us have that potential. You talk about serial killers and and depravity that they have in their heart to just blatantly kill and, and do all sorts of things that are evil. But it's also a demonstration of the sovereignty of God. And as we, we go through the rest of this chapter, we're going to look at that in just a moment. And it's an illustration of a proper response. How do we respond to God saying, this is what's going to happen, and it's going to be terrible, well, Daniel, just like last week, he had a, a physical response to that at the end of the chapter. Hi, um, Daniel was overcome and laid sick for several, some days. 
Okay? But the last half of that verse is what we need to hear. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Remember that phrase. I went about the king's business. And I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Okay? So we're going to look at that in just a moment. So I'm going to stop there and I'm just going to start reading through. Let me go back to that screen. Okay, let's just go read through. Beginning um, in verse 12. No, not verse 12. Uh, my, oh, yeah. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolation and the giving over this sanctuary and the host, that's the people of Israel, being trampled underfoot. And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now there's the division, different commentaries try to interpret this 2,300 days because it's evening and morning, many things allusion to the morning and evening sacrifice. So it's not 2,300 days, but it's 1,150 days that this period is going to go on. It's roughly three to three and a half years that this period goes on. And that's basically the terror that Antiochus leveled against Israel beginning in 167 B.C. to about 164 B.C. In 164 B.C., um, a group of zealots led by Judas Maccabeus rebelled against Antiochus, and so there was a war that went on, and um, really, really, really began in, in 166 and culminated in 164. And Antiochus was driven out. The um, Seleucian Greeks were driven out, and Israel was restored to a Jewish leadership and control. And um, that's the apocryphal books called 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. Okay? Now, 1st and 2nd Maccabees is okay because it, it records history. You get into the 3rd and 4th Maccabean books, it gets a little... Twilight Zone. You know, they kind of go off in the deep end with imaginations and stuff. But first and second Maccabees, really, if you want to read about this on a first-hand basis, you can read first and second Maccabees, and it will describe this rebellion by the Maccabeans and the establishment of the Hasmonean priesthood and, and reign in Jerusalem. And so it was thrown off. When do we, when when does Hanukkah happen? What, what month does Hanukkah happen? December. In December, right? Now, Hanukkah is not a biblical celebration. It's an interbiblical celebration. Hanukkah is the restoration, celebration of the restoration of the temple by the Maccabeans. After it was desecrated and made desolate by Antiochus, and once they drove him out and the Greeks out, they cleansed the temple, and Hanukkah is the inner biblical celebration of the cleansing of the temple and restoring proper worship to the temple. And so, as we read this, God limits Antiochus IV. As I mentioned earlier, he sends a little virus to him and kills him. 
When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of the man. I think this is the Lord Jesus, personally. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eula and called Gabriel. This one that Daniel sees speaks to Gabriel. And who can command Gabriel but who? But God. Okay? Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. And fell on my face. Now I want you to remember this. When these guys get on TV and talk about they go to heaven and they see God and they see Jesus and we're buddy buddies. Or when Benny Hen says he's there shaving at his, at his uh, bathroom mirror and Jesus comes along and starts talking to him. Don't believe that nonsense. When you're in the presence of the holy. And Gabriel represents the presence of the holy. You fall down in fear. We're like Isaiah. We say, woe is me. Isaiah was bringing a curse upon himself. The word woe was a word of curse. He said, I'm cursed because I'm, I see the true and living God. Remember Samson's uh, mom and dad? They thought they, were, they had the mark of death on them because they had seen the angel of the Lord. They had seen the holy. And they thought once they saw the holy that they were going to die. Because when you see the holiness of God, it, it doesn't buddy-buddy stuff. Even blasphemous, now I'm not going to think of his name now, Jesse Duplantis, says that God came to him one time and asked Jesse for advice. That's blasphemy. If God ever came to Jesse Duplantis, he would have been falling on his face in fear just like Daniel. And so Gabriel comes and he fell and fell on his face and he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now when that phrase is read, what do we think of? All the way when Jesus comes back. But that's not what this phrase means. It means the end of Antiochus Epiphanes. It means the end of this experience of the host of people of God going through this horrible experience with Antiochus Epiphanes. And when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, Darius and Cyrus. Okay, The larger... Horn is Cyrus because the Persians dominated this conglomerate of empires. And Cyrus rose to prominence. And that's why God told Isaiah, Cyrus is my shepherd. And it was Cyrus that gave and allowed the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it and rebuild the temple. Just like the bear in the other vision. One side of the bear was higher than the other side of the bear because Cyrus took prominence, okay? And so these kings are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. This is Alexander the Great. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. As for the horn that was broken in place of which the four others arose 
four kingdoms shall rise from his nation. And so when, when Alexander died unexpectedly, it took about a year for this all to be worked out. But his kingdom was divided among his four of his generals. Macedonia, which was basically Greece, was given to the general Cassander. Thrace, which was a little bit northeast of Greece, and Asia Minor, which we know as Turkey today, was given to Lysimachus. Syria was given to Seleucus, from which Antiochus was a descendant. Egypt was given to Ptolemy. Okay? Now, Macedonia and Thrace, Asia Minor, kind of faded in the background. The two prominent rulers were Seleucus and Ptolemy, and they were constantly going at one another, and we'll see this later in this uh, prophecy of Daniel. And there was constant uh, back and forth. And so when it says that, um, verse 22, for the horn that was broken in place, the four others arose, four kingdoms shall come from his nation, but not with his power. And none of them ever rose to the power of Alexander. And at the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors had reached their limit, a king of bold face, it really means a hard face, a fierce face, kind of hard-nosed, kind of the idea of that word there. One who understands riddles and shall arise. Uh, very devious and deceptive. Antiochus um, would come to a city and offer them his hand, and as soon as they would open a gate, he would have his soldiers rushed in, and he would slaughter the people. He was a very wicked man. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. When I first read that, I'm thinking, well, this guy is empowered by Satan. But I don't think that's true. God, in his sovereignty and his wisdom, has allowed Antiochus to rise to this place. God limits the powers of kingdoms and beasts. And we need to remember that. Look at Putin. He can't do anything that God does not allow. Even the wickedness of Hitler, which we have a hard time getting in our head. If you've not read much about the Holocaust, you ought to read about it. And the wickedness of that the brutality of that, the slaughter of innocent people day after day after day after day after day, really starting in 1939 all the way up just prior to when Germany surrendered in 1945. I can't answer the question why God allows that other than he turns man over to himself. Three times in chapter 1 of Romans, it says God gave them up to themselves and lets man demonstrate his wickedness, his fallenness. But he didn't rise to this great power on his own, but by God's allowance, just like Nebuchadnezzar. God told Nebuchadnezzar the same thing. He shall cause fearful destruction <coughs> and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Okay? Now, some want to take this and apply it to the Antichrist. I think it can be to some degree, but this is specifically talking about Antiochus IV. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall be great. He was delusional. 
okay? Theos, Antiochus, Epiphanes, the glorious God. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, against God, exalt himself against God. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. It wasn't the Maccabeans that really broke Antiochus. It was God himself. Again, we go all the way back to the beginning of his prophecy. It is God who raises up kingdoms and puts kingdoms down. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. God says this is going to happen in the future. 300, 200 years after Daniel writes these words. And I, Daniel, was overcome and laid sick for some days, and I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and didn't understand it. So, what's the so what of this vision? So what? Good reading, interesting reading. You can, we can go to secular history and, and read parallels accounts of the rise of Alexander, the rise of these various generals and and uh, the rise of Antiochus. Uh, Josephus talks about it. The Maccabean first and second talk about it. We have a historical record that we can examine it and see how it fits right into what God had told Daniel. But so what? And sometimes you hear people say, well, that's, that's an ancient book. It means nothing to me today. Well, yes, it does. Uh, we need to have eyes to see. I talked about this a little bit Wednesday night toward the end of the study Wednesday night. Or maybe at the beginning, I can't remember now. I sang the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see you. And my point was Wednesday and the same today. We're not looking for some mystical, esoteric vision of God and get a thrill up and down our back and up and down our leg if we're Chris Matthews. And, and uh, some of you understand that, some of you won't. <laughs> um, open the eyes of my heart to your word. I want to see you. I want to know the true and living God. That was Paul's heart cry, Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be conformed to his death, that I may be like Christ. This is the so what. Daniel was able to see. He was blessed by that. He was also disturbed by that. We see hard things in Scripture. We see hard things in this world. But we need to see what God says about it. And so we need to have eyes to see. I would go further. We need to have ears to hear. That's what Jesus said to the seven churches. He that had ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He said it in his earthly ministry. He who has ears to hear, hear, listen. We need to have eyes to see, ears to hear, but this is the clincher. We need a will to obey. It's just not information. We need transformation. Transformation only occurs when we obey what God says. We can have the information. In fact, many people have the information of the gospel. <clears throat> you see this sometimes mockingly on, on TV shows, comedy shows, so-called comedy shows. Sometimes uh, in other gen genre, sometimes you see it on the street. People say, oh, you've got to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Well, that's true, right? It's true. But if you don't believe, it has no value. That knowledge has no value to you. Knowing what God says and instructs us 
has really little value to us until we obey it, until we embrace it, until we trust what he says. So we have to have eyes to see. Not visions, but the truth of Scripture. Okay? Uh, and we need to know this is a spiritual battle. Again, we'll see this later on in uh, chapter 9 and, and 10. What's going on here, more than just physical Antiochus IV against the Maccabeans and uh, uh, Alexander against the Medo-Persians. What's going on here is a spiritual battle. There are two kingdoms battling. And they continue to battle this day. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin and rebellion, and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And until Jesus comes again, this battle is going to go on. I think that's what the picture is of Armageddon is that when Jesus comes back, this battle is done. The victories are been won at the cross, Colossians 2.15. Jesus openly triumphed over the powers of darkness at the cross. We have the already and the not yet. The already is that he that is in us is greater than what? He is in this world. That uh, we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us. What can separate us from the love of God? There's one word, starts with an N, ends with a G. What is that? Nothing. Can separate. And Paul just goes through a litany of trying to expand to illustrate that nothing. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. The already is present. The kingdom of God is already present in my heart and in your heart. And in the life of the church. We are a victorious church. We don't act like it a lot. It doesn't appear that we're victorious. I see study after study of people leaving the church, leaving the church, leaving the church. And I think even uh, Russell Moore wrote a book or wrote an article about evangelicalism in crisis. There's no crisis in the gospel. There's no crisis in the word of God. And um, I I think God is preparing a day where he's thinning out the church. He's thinning out the true believers from those who are the pretenders. And persecution, when persecution intensifies, the cream rises what? To the top. True believers endure. Now, Jesus even said that at times there's going to be such wickedness and such persecution that if God didn't stop it, even the elect would perish. But the elect are not going to perish. We're not going to perish because God, just like he had limited Antiochus IV, It wasn't his power that made him rise up. It was what God allowed him to do, and God limited him, and then God took him out when it was his time to take him out. This is a spiritual battle going on. It goes on in our hearts every day. It goes on in this world every day. But we're, light always conquers what? Darkness. And Jesus said, we're the light of the world, because he's the light of the world. And we need to take comfort in knowing who holds the future. Now I'll come back to quickly and end here. Come back to this last sentence in this chapter. Then I arose and went about the king's business. Okay? Now he could have stayed and said, I gotta understand this. I got I gotta read this over and I gotta look at this over and over again. I gotta understand this. A lot of people spend a lot of time on eschatology. In some ways, it's exciting. 
particularly dispensations, is exciting. You read the headlines in the newspaper every day, or watch the news every day, and you're just grabbing at these things. And man, this fits here, this fits here, and we got it all coming out together. But that's not what Daniel did. Daniel got up, took a shower, put on clean clothes, and went about the king's business. What God calls us to do, now we need, I'm looking forward to the coming of Christ. I'm excited about that. That trumpet's going to sound one day, and the dead in Christ are going to rise, and we, which, if we're alive, we're going to be caught in the air, and we're going to be transformed in that moment in the twinkling of an eye. But Daniel got up and went about the, the routine of life. He went about the king's business. Now, what is our king's business? Jesus said, come and what? Follow me. me. That's the king's business. How do we follow Christ? Well, we follow him by being people of the book, learning the word of God, memorizing the word of God, meditating upon the word of God, obeying the word of God, having those eyes to see, those ears to hear, and that will to obey him. To be that light in the midst of darkness. To let Christ, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, all these things happen to me so that Christ can be revealed through me. He said, the little G God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who are perishing, lest the glorious light of the gospel, the glorious light of Christ, shines to them. Now, Satan's very active in blinding eyes. But by God's grace... We can be light shining in this darkness, and by God's grace, he can take that blindness away and open up that heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ and call that heart, that individual, to saving faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's God's business, okay? So we've been in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, Apollos planted, and I watered, but God gave the increase. That's God's business when he opens up a a dead heart and a blinded eye. It's our business to go about and do the business of the king so that we can be shining as light in darkness, so we can be sharing the gospel and trust God for the results. When we pray, we pray that this... I'm praying for my grandkids that their heart will become good soil. And I pray, Lord, bring somebody across their threshold that will point them to Jesus. I pray, Lord, draw my granddaughter to you. That's a, the king's business. His word and prayer. Worship. That's the king's business. Now we do it in the routine of life, right? I told you before, if I ever wrote a book, which I don't think I will, (laughs) it would be the participle Christian. Because the Great Commission is really like this. As you are going into all the world, that's our daily routine. Make disciples. Now we translate that, we preach that as an imperative. Go into all the world. But it's really a participle. Jesus said, as you're going into all the world, Make disciples. And when they come to saving faith, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And guess what? 
as you're going into all the world, lo, I am with you, what? Always. Sometimes when we think of imperative, we got to get missionaries up here. Now, I believe in missionaries. I support missionaries. Uh, a couple that I'm actually married. Uh, they were good friends of ours early in our ministry. I married them in a ceremony. Chris sang at their wedding. They're missionaries down in Guatemala. They, they were IMB missionaries that retired, I think, from them. And they started this Good Shepherd ministry in Guatemala. And they are impacting that country with the gospel. They're training and training people. They have a clinic. They minister to people physically uh, with uh, medicine, all kinds of. Vicky's a nurse. And they have doctors that come. They do all kinds of things that are a blessing. But it's just not missionaries that are in Guatemala or in Brazil are in deepest Africa. That sign above those doors says, we are entering what? Anybody look at that sign? <laughs> we are entering the mission field because we want to get up, take a shower. If you can, comb your hair and be about the king's business. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it's true that you're able, Father, to speak to Daniel and tell him of things that are a long way off, but yet they come true. So, Father, help us to worship you as that true and living God, the God of all creation. And, Father, help us to truly be about your business, for you are our king. Father, help us when we doubt. Help us when we fear. Help us, Father, when we uh, yield to the enticement of the flesh of the world. Help us to repent. And like the Ephesian believers, return to our first love and be about 